This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're looking at factors that will shape our food world in 2019. We start with trend predictions and how media covers them. A website could theoretically devote all their coverage to these viral trends and, and get all sorts of hits. That's not a way to build sustainable readerships, just as it's not a way to build you know, sustainable restaurants. We report on a big change coming and how street meat will be served. On January 1st, a ban on plastic foam went into effect in New York City. And we round out the episode with a story about using gene editing to create the spicy tomato of the future. At first, it sounds like a, like a gimmick or like something that you would do for fun. The truth is, there is a real value behind it. It's not too late to make your resolution. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode this year. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today, my guests are both Reem Rahim Hassani and Jane French from Numi Organic Tea. Reem is the co-founder and chief brand officer of Numi Organic Tea, one of the fastest-growing tea companies in the industry. Reem is a mission-driven entrepreneur who strives to foster a healthy, thriving global community while bringing the public the best, purest-tasting organic tea. Jane French is the Director of Strategic Sourcing and Sustainability at Numi Organic Tea, where she ensures the ongoing ethical sourcing and premium quality of ingredients while leading sustainable strategy. Welcome to the show, Reem and Jane. Thank you, Sari. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank both. you for having us. Thank you so much. Um, so you're both uh, calling in on the phone. Are you in Oakland? I'm in Petaluma, actually. Okay. And Jane's in Oakland. And okay. I'm in our office in Oakland. Got it. Okay, so you're, you're very far away from where we are in Bushwick, Brooklyn. So thank you for making the time to speak with us today. Um, let's just jump right in. I'll start with Reem. You are the co-founder of Numi. Uh, you started it with your brother, Ahmed. Can you tell me a little bit about where you both came from, where you grew up, what that was like? Sure. Um, well, we were both, both born in Baghdad, Iraq, and uh, we immigrated to the United States um, in 1971 uh, and grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so close to you, so we understand the cold. I also um, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, really? Yeah. Where about? Shaker Heights. Yeah. How about you? Oh, that's where I grew up. No way! <laughs> I swear. Where'd yeah. you go to school? Shaker Heights High School. That's where my brother went. I went to Hathaway Brown. Oh, yeah. When did... Uh, sorry. So, sorry, listeners. We got to do this real quick. When, when did you guys graduate? I graduated in 84. Okay. Probably much older than you. Just a yeah. little bit. And he graduated in 86. Yeah. You graduated in 86. That's really funny. Well, that's yeah. awesome. Well, now I'm really psyched you're on the <laughs> show. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, we um, grew up in Cleveland and... You know, we're immigrant family growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. So, you know, that had its its positives and negatives, I suppose. 
And um, we launched uh, Numi in 1999, and it was inspired by a dried lime we drank as children called Numi from oh. Iraq. And we'd always always discussed, uh, you know, bringing it to the United States and that somebody should do it. And then we finally came upon doing it. Um, my brother had owned and operated tea houses in Prague in the Czech Republic. He'd lived there for several years. And I was an artist. Um, and uh, I did the artwork for the packaging, and he did all the blends. And we started in a small apartment in Oakland and then grew, slowly grew, and, you know, worked our butts off and grew uh, to be where we are today. And so we're distributed across the United States and across 30 countries around the world and, you know, have so many different products that we sell currently. Yeah. Um, I'm still a little stuck on the whole Shaker Heights thing. I, I'm just, I mean, I'm curious. I read a lot about how your family like traveled back and forth from Cleveland to Iraq a lot. And I mean, my experience at Shaker was that it was, it was pretty diverse. Was that the same mm-hmm. for you or um, did you feel, you know, were there other people who had emigrated from, you know, the Middle East when you were there or what was that like for you? Yeah, I think um, Shaker was pretty diverse. We were on the edge of Shaker and Beachwood. So our street, we were um, the only Less diverse, Muslims yeah. on the street. Um, uh, the rest of the street was all Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> My dad so, was a rabbi in Beechwood. Yeah. And, um, you know, which was fine. No problem. Uh, I think in where I went to school was very, um, I guess I would say waspy in the sense that um, most uh, were, you know, white, Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, um, uh, you know, wealthier uh, gals. And... Um, I was friends with the Jewish girls, and um, there was a couple, couple other. It was, it was a little bit uh, lacking diversity when I was growing up there. What was your choice to go to a private girls' school as as opposed to go to a public school, which was, you know, pretty integrated? Wasn't my choice. Got it. Uh, it was my parents' <laughs> choice. Right. <laughs> so. Um, Ahmed, my brother, was in, at Gilmore for a couple of years, but he rebelled and got out, so he uh, went to Shaker. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, was there ever a feeling of kind of like existing between two different worlds because your family was back and forth yes. a lot? Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, we used to travel uh, every three, four years. We used to go to Iraq to see our family, or they would come to visit us. In the summer, so we had a lot of contact with them, and I always felt like I was living two different worlds because inside my home, my parents spoke Arabic, and it was very strongly focused on the culture and food and traditions, and a pretty traditional family. Um, and then outside was a whole different world. So there were, you know, certain things like dating, which was not in you know, not allowed within my family, at least for the girls, um, that was normal outside. So, you know, it was a lot of kind of trying to um, trying to switch identities or trying to figure out how you fit in. That was a big issue for me. It was fitting in, and there was a sense of longing to fit in a lot. Probably on both sides, too. I mean, I imagine you just had to do a lot of compartmentalizing. I mean, just when I yeah. picture, I mean, I, because you because you say HB, and I, I just know exactly what you mean. I just picture, like, a lot of white girls playing field hockey. 
Yeah, that's how it was. Yeah. And I was on the tennis team. And so, you know, fitting into that and and also feeling not, I don't want to say ostracized, they'd be a little bit marginalized and mm-hmm. people really not understanding or saying things that were discriminating that came back to you in one form or another. You always kind of felt like you're on the outside. Yeah. Um, is that part of the reason why you became an artist? Was it just like a way to express yourself? I think I became an artist for various reasons. Um, that probably one of them, and I did a lot of artwork at HV, um, and I was in the art classes and kind of was an art star, actually. Um, you know, teachers took me on under their wing. Um, I uh, think my family, the way I was raised, also was kind of, um, I don't want to say repressive, but just very strict so that I wanted to break out of that and then I also come from a family of um, my mom's a designer and she studied art and I come from a lineage of that so I think there's a lot of different combinations yeah Um, yeah yeah and I actually studied engineering as an undergrad so as an immigrant you know at least my family we were pushed to do things that were more um you know, that gave you stability and you had a career. So uh, studying art was not in the books for me. So I was going to be a doctor. Then I decided to study biomedical engineering. My sister was also an engineer. And my brothers were pushed to do business and engineering. And they actually, my parents didn't talk to them for a couple of years because they studied liberal art. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not easy. I guess becoming an entrepreneur and starting this company with Ahmed was a way to kind of satisfy everything. Um, maybe in some ways, cause you I think s- it all, yeah, yeah. Exactly, like you, you still get to be an artist, to, right. But you're an entrepreneur. That, yeah, so based, yeah, exactly. So it all kind of came full swing because, um, Ahmed started off his business and then he hated it. And then he studied, ended up going into photography and psychology and drama. And you know, that was not, that was not really acceptable. And then after I finished engineering, I diverted into art and then we kind of brought it back full circle and, you know, did the thing that would, you know, make sure that we were on our feet financially and (laughs) steady and all that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so what, in what ways does new me, I mean, other than the name, which is such like a a lovely little story and and are there other ways that it reflects your heritage and your background? Um, I think that our values are very aligned to our background in the sense that um, we come from a very, you know, like I'm saying all these things that were very strict and traditional, but yet at the same time, the Arab culture is very open and generous. And our mother especially was, is still to this day extremely um, helpful and open and, and has helped so many um refugees and friends i can't tell you how many people lived at our house uh because they were fleeing from iraq and um that sense of generosity i think has uh infiltrated uh, seeped into seeped into the way we do business so um you know it's a very open and generous culture that we have in the company uh it's a family oriented culture we have in the family in the in the company and then 
um, having left a place that's so war war torn and traveling to different countries, um, you you are exposed to ways of life that you wouldn't be if you just grew up here and you have so much privilege here. Um, you know, so you don't see. You know, I mean, you see homeless people, but you don't see beggars as much on the street, and you don't see the poverty that you would see if you travel to, um, you know, third world countries. And I think that has given us a sense of perspective that people don't have it so good. And, you know, if you're going to make contact with other people, you should help them along the way. It's not just everything's for your benefit. So those combinations of my my family culture and um, being and ex, being exposed to um, you know other cultures a lot of in a lot of ways define um, how we are how we relate to others and through the business and then I would add too that because we've been exposed to a lot of cultures having um, being worldly in that sense um, it's really important for us to bring these different foods from around the world. I mean, when I'm saying foods, I'm saying tea. So tea is a way to get exposed. Uh, food is a way to get exposed to other cultures. And, um, and it's a connection. So I think, you know, importing different teas from all these different communities and cultures around the world gets you exposed to something that you, would, you wouldn't otherwise. So mm-hmm. through the business. Um, and I, I do want to hear about some of the specific ingredients, but can you talk, and I think Jane can jump in at this point, talk about some of those initiatives you participate in that um, kind of create the the foundation of your company's just value system? Sure, Jane. Could, Jane, you could talk to that a little. Sure, yeah. So um, I think one of the most important things uh, just to begin with is that we are an organic company. So everything that we purchase is organic. And um, that's extremely important because um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons it's really important is that the first time the tea leaves or the botanicals are coming into contact with water is when um, is when uh, the 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 tea and the water that you pour into the teacup actually infuses those leaves, and so any residues or anything that's on that um, tea leaf at all is going to go into your cup. So I first really, and foremost, yeah. starting with organic, it's just tremendously important. And not only is that important for the consumer, for those who are enjoying that cup of tea, um, it's also important for uh, the people that are growing that tea, and and then the watersheds where that tea is coming from. So mm-hmm. that also ensures that um, you know the people who are who are um, plucking the tea leaves and um, tending the gardens are also not exposed to those agrochemicals and aren't bringing those home into their houses as well and exposing their families. And then in addition, um, it's avoiding the agrochemical runoff. So none of those chemicals are running into the local watersheds um, where they mix in with, you know, the water supply and the food supply. Um, I, so I have to, yeah, I just, I've never, I had never even thought about that before until I looked at the website for Numi, like the fact that tea leaves are never, they never have contact with water until they're in a teacup with water. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're just plucked and they're dried and depending on the type of tea, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, black tea and green tea and white tea and oolong tea, they all come from the same plant, Camellia sinensis, and depending how that tea leaf is processed after it's been plucked, um, it, it turns into a black tea or a green tea or a white tea. 
Um, so there's various degrees of um, drying and um, processing to bring out different flavors in that in that tea leaf. But at no point is that tea leaf then you know kind of washed or uh, or you know kind of cleaned of chemicals before it goes it goes to the consumer. Of course, there is um, kind of uh, treatment to make sure that it, it doesn't have a, you know anything that could make anybody sick or anything like that. But the chemicals have been you know anything that was used to grow the tea leaf will still be there. Wow. So yeah, organics is really important to us, and that's number one. Um, and we also, you know, many of the um, the farms that we work with too, we select them based on kind of where they're, they're located. So we're really looking for um, farmers that share our organic values, that are kind of doing it for the right reasons, that put that kind of earth first and um, you know, organics first um, at the forefront of their operations too. So, for example, one of our um, our uh, green tea suppliers in China was the very first um, uh, green tea supplier or green tea grower in China to get an organic certificate and to export organic green tea from China. So he really is a pioneer in his field too, and we have the, the honor to work with him and, and, and the cooperatives that, that he's helped foster in his community. How, how do you um, so find farmers? Another, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how do you cultivate yeah, relationships? A, and yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, we we do a lot of traveling um, around the world, so you know, it's really we get ourselves out there um, to different uh, opportunities where people gather in the industry. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, we also go to Origin um, many, you know, multiple times a year, but we're visiting our key suppliers um, almost every year um, and really getting to know who they are and what their needs are and, you know, really sharing meals with them and, you know, meeting their kids and watching their kids grow up. And um, so really it's through these trips to origin and, and, and it's, it's hard to explain exactly how the magic happens, but, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, when you're out on a trip and, and like maybe you have a loose agenda of where you think you're going to be going, but you're kind of, you know, your feelers are out there and you're open to possibility. Um, it's kind of really bringing that attitude to to the journey. And um, it's it's amazing what happens. I mean, you, you just, you might be in some village and you're talking about, you know, jasmine flowers and somebody walks in and says, oh, you know, have you met this guy? And next thing you know, you're on a road somewhere, you know, to meet the most amazing jasmine flower grower you've ever met, you know? Mm, so it's, yeah. There's a there's a certain element of serendipity to it um, that's guided by kind of an intention and and values um, and uh, yeah. We had a question uh, that actually came to us for you on Twitter about um, whether or not the packaging was sustainable um, or, and could be composted because you know you have so many different. I mean, you, just being an organic company, obviously that's. Sustainability is a major value, but do you want to speak to that? Because I, I imagine that that's a harder yeah. problem. Yeah, it's a, it is a really hard problem, and I'm so glad that that's come up because it's such an important question for our time. You know, I mean, really, um, you know, ocean plastics and, you know, plastics and, and all of our um, bodies and everything. It's just it's such an important issue, um, and it's one that we've been working on for many, many years Um so we uh, formed in, uh, do you know what year it was, Reem, that, that OSC2 started? Uh, it's been five years, I think. Yeah, so it, it, yeah. It, about five years ago, um, Ahmed 
co-founded a group called um, OSC2, One Step Closer to an Organic Sustainable Community, um, with Lara Dickinson and with some other like-minded brands. And, and the first question that this, this industry group kind of took, took upon themselves was packaging. You know, here we are bringing these beautiful organic fair trade ingredients from all over the world to our consumers in this really mindful, mission-driven way, and they're all wrapped in plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a serious problem for the industry. Um, the, the challenge with it is that, you know, we as a small company, a relatively small company, um, don't have a lot of clout in the, the plastics industry. Right. Um, so it, it, it's been difficult for us to, you know, to go to the manufacturers of the packaging materials and say, hey, guys, you know, we want, we want to talk about doing this differently. Um, so by forming that group, OSC2, we were able to get enough brands together, um, you know, brands like Goyaki and Dr. Bronner's and Ultra Eco and Lotus Foods and many others. And together we were able to say, hey, look at us now. You know, this, this is a much bigger market um, than any one of us standing alone. And we really, truly are interested in compostable packaging. And we need alternatives to this plastic, you know, as soon as possible. And we started with flexible film, which is the plastic that goes over our tea bag. Um, that's the only component of our packaging that still has any plastic in it at all. It's kind of been our last, the last um, kind of the last uh, holy grail of you know kind of what what we need to address. Um, and it's also what covers you know your average energy bar or granola bar and you know, potato chips. You know that's all this flexible film packaging. Um, it's a really tricky one because it needs to be able to run on manufacturing equipment that has a very strict tolerance um, in terms of how it can run, the speed it can run, um, everything like that. Um, and it also needs to provide adequate barrier properties to your food and food that you're trying to preserve so that food maintains its quality um, all the way to the consumer. Um, so that's been a challenge for us, too, because we spend all this time um, searching out these really unique, beautiful, premium, organic, fair trade ingredients. Um, you know, we definitely want them to arrive at our at our consumers um, in the best possible condition so that when they open that bag and they pour that water on, they have a really beautiful experience of the tea. Um, so ensuring that the tea... That hey, you guys still there? Tremendously important. Okay. So... Um, with these other brands, we got the attention of some of the biggest um, uh, film companies in, you know, really in, in the world, because this is a, a multinational kind of a market, these, these plastic manufacturers. And we got them to the table to talk to us and have meetings with us about what we wanted. Um, and, and they actually innovated and have come up with some new materials. Wow. Um, so we, yeah, it's actually, it's really extraordinary. It um, is, yeah. And so we've, yeah, and so we've been piloting a new material. Um, we've done, gosh, at this point, we've probably done like eight or nine um, tests at our manufacturing facility. And, you know, the first couple of tests, it was, you know, it, it, it wouldn't seal properly. It came delaminated, you know, the tea bags popped open, you know, and every time we've learned and we've, we've learned um, what to improve and how to improve. And now we have a structure that is completely plant-based. We're really excited about it. Um, We are now working, you know, sort of the challenge we're having is fitting it into the parameters of, 
you know, what defines um, compostability, because there are some pretty strict um, guidelines in terms of the amount of time within which it has to break down. Um, and so our structure is actually in a lab right now um, being tested uh, to meet the guidelines that are required in order to state compostability on the packaging. Um, but we do have a 100% plant-based structure. We sort of feel like we're, we're, in the, the, we're, we're not over the finish line yet, but we're getting really, really close. And we're really, really excited about it, um, but not quite sure yet when it's going to be available. Okay. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. Uh, and it's just so impressive to I hear. Want, I wanted to add to that uh, conversation is uh, another challenge along this is around GMO. Mm-hmm. Because, um, as you probably know, there's a lot of uh, bioplastics out there, whether they're forks or, you know, forks, knives, um you know, bags, you name it, and um, and even tea bags too. There's a lot of see-through pouches that are made out of a bioplastic. Now that bioplastic is made out of a corn residue uh, or corn, you know, corn, whatever it's called. It's a um, poly, like a uh, polymer. Poly- yeah, a polymer, and and most of the corn, 99% of the corn that's grown is GMO-based. So we've been trying to also stay away from anything that is GMO-based. So when Jane says it's plant-based, she's saying it's plant-based that's non-GMO. So that's a big challenge. And to add sort of a whole umbrella to it is, um, you know, as we've been going about this sustainability track, I always think that, you know, sustainability isn't an absolute. It's a process. Mm-hmm. So if you think of where we've where we've been since the industrial revolution and you know how much plastic is out there now and how we have to kind of reverse and rewind all the damage that we're doing it really is a process. So like Jane's saying, you know the machines will not take the you know will not take a natural material that they're used to you know they're used to what they're used to in terms of of the materials that have been created for them. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a big and and the unraveling yeah yeah it's it is and it's it's a it's a it's a a monumental task and the the supply chains for those packaging materials are very well established for the conventional sort of you know plastic um petroleum-based packaging materials you know they've been at it for 50 years perfecting the materials Hmm. and we're kind of at the the very dawn of these innovative materials. So we feel really proud as a brand to be leading the way in terms of testing materials and actually getting them out there to our production floor and really putting our toe in the water to see what works and what doesn't. Um, the other big challenge, of course, is cost um, because, uh, you know, this is a very new material and it really literally costs 100% more than what it is that we're using right now. Um, so another challenge, too, is kind of fitting it into the overall um, pie um, of, of our costs, you know, and, and really thinking through how do we find find the uh, resources, you know, to allocate to that and then gradually phase it in with the hope that the cost is going to start to come down as more and more people use that material. Well, it does sound like a monumental undertaking. I mean, it's just kind of overwhelming to think about all the different hurdles you're you're dealing with, but I really commend you for being so uncompromising and relentless and you know, clearly th- things are actually changing and it's it's because of your pursuits and, you know, innovation doesn't happen overnight, but it's surely happening and you're a big part of that. So that's really incredible. 
Um, we're going to take a quick break, and Jane, Reem, please stay with us, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. You can rewind, erase, forget my face. I'm someone that's You are listening to Food Without Borders on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and we've been chatting with Reem Rahim Hassani. She's the co-founder of Numi Organic Tea and Jane French, who's the director of strategic sourcing and sustainability at Numi Organic Tea. Uh, welcome back, both of you. Um, Reem or Jane or both of you, could you just tell us a little bit about the tea? Like what are the different flavors and talk about like where the sourcing comes from and where the inspiration for the flavors come from? Uh, sure, I could say that. So we have, um, uh, how many SKUs do we have total? Uh, probably a good 40 or so main ones. Um, we have green teas and black teas. Uh, you know, so there's a difference between a traditional camellia sinensis tea and an herbal tisane, we call it. And those do not have the tea plant in them. So we do have uh, white teas, green teas, black teas, and puer teas, and I think we have oolong loose tea. Um, and that comes from um, the, the camellia sinensis plant, which is grown predominantly in Southeast Asia. Um, there are some camellia sinensis that are plants that grow in Africa too, but um, these ones are from the ones that we source are from um, India, China. Japan, um, and we have specific gardens that we source from there, and I think maybe even Taiwan. Uh, so the blends, the original blends that we did um, were just straight blends, like a gunpowder green, which is a green tea that's rolled into small little pellets, uh, a jasmine green, which is a scented jasmine, uh, scented green tea, um, an earl grey. We started off with very um, kind of standard, not standard, but you know the, the, the your staple teas that you would that you would have. Uh, uh, we had a um, we have a Yunnan black tea, which comes from Yunnan, China, and a breakfast blend tea. So all the kind of staple green black teas. Um, then we branched out into Pu'er teas um, a number of years ago, and Pu'er is a fermented tea. Also from China, it grows in a particular region in China, and they grow on 500-year-old um, tea trees, which is the way tea used to be used to grow uh, before they harvested them into bushes. And those, um, they're they're processed in a very unique way, in the sense that they're piled up 
instead of laying, being laid out to dry or rolled or curled, um, and then and then and then heat heat process like in a like either in a in a wok or uh, through some sort of some sort of heat mechanism, uh, which stops the tea leaf from oxidizing. And when we say oxidizing, it basically means being exposed to oxygen and getting darker and darker. So the pu'er teas are laid and they're piled and then they're left for, you know, 30 to 60 days in their turn. So they basically kind of almost, almost like a compost process where they start to ferment and you get all kinds of amazing probiotic benefits from that tea. Hmm. And um, it's known to um, break down uh, cholesterol, um, you know, break, known to break down fat, um, it also provides you with a lot of um, energy and supposed to be good for digestion. So there's a lot of great benefits that, um, you know, people have been waking up to with Pu'er. And it's a great alternative to coffee as well. Those are the main teas that we get, and those are from China and India mostly. And then we have a number of herbals, um, that, and those are just herbs. You know, there's thousands and thousands of herbs that grow all over the world. And um, we have, uh, you know, we get, for example, our new our dry desert lime, which grows in Oman. We've got our mint and chamomile, which come from Egypt. Our rooibos and honeybush from South Africa. Um, and let's see, uh, no, I'm missing so many. And then we have lots of interesting blends. So we do some chocolate teas that use real cocoa. And we get our mm-hmm. cocoa from Peru. Uh, we do. Um, we have a line of holistic teas, which are more um, kind of beneficial herbs, um, healthy and beneficial herbs that like moringa and guayusa. Uh, moringa comes from Africa, and guayusa comes from uh, Central America. So these these particular herbs kind of have specific functions that they do for you. Tulsi comes from India, and so forth. Um, or what, what am I missing, Jane? <laughs> Going through my mind. Turmeric. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, I can't believe I forgot turmeric. <laughs> and then turmeric uh, comes from Madagascar, and that's been a really healthy leading um, uh, root, of course, um, that helps with inflammation. And we've been getting that from Madagascar. And, uh, you know, along those lines, we do different projects on the gardens that help the farmers um and in Madagascar in particular, we have our Together for Hope project where we built about 24 wells for the villages, villagers there that have never had access to clean, safe drinking water before. And they were drink, getting collecting their water from the dirty rivers. And we implemented our Together for Hope project there. Wow. Um, so we're always trying to do whatever we can, you know, to kind of bring it full circle to have, you know, from, from, from farmer to cup. there's benefits along the way yeah I mean you do so much and your brother Ahmed does so much and um, I just have to ask how it feels like as you know two people who both are from Iraq and growing up in a very traditional Iraqi family um, how has the experience for you been I mean you've you've achieved so much success and you just do so much good with your company listening to the administration in the past two years just with so much um, anti-immigrant rhetoric and you know banning people coming here from so many countries in the middle east like i mean how has that just affected you and your sense of self or or not um 
it it makes me really sad mm-hmm. because um, you know it you know obviously kind of paints immigrants as criminals um, you know especially come from the southern border and it, and all over you know whether they're Arabs and they're terrorists or they're Mexicans and it, it's really sad yeah. because um, you know the people who have you know people have come here from all over the world and have added so much to this country as we know and you know there's you know there's the whole illegal conversation and then coming here legally and i i get that i get that piece yet it doesn't it doesn't go into the nuances it just blankets um it blankets all immigrants as um kind of a, a, you know a burden, I would suppose, and I don't think that's the case. And I think, um, you know, and I think the country is richer because of all the immigration that's here. And um, so it, it, I just find it really sad. And and the other thing I think is interesting, too, is people want to come here because they want to better their lives and they want to improve their lives. And they, they, they come to add to the country. They don't come to take away from the country. That's one. And uh, most people don't actually want to leave their country. They have no choice. Yeah. You know, there's there's war and there's poverty and, and they're fleeing from something. You know, if they had the choice, I think my parents had the choice, they would have stayed, stayed put. So there's so much more complexity than the way it's being kind of just, um, uh, yeah, whitewashed. I don't know what you want to call it, but yeah. it's just... It's, it's not fair, I think, at the end of the day. Well, I agree, and thank you for sharing. And, that. and you know, and, and people who come here are so blessed and fortunate. I mean, I love this country, and I feel so fortunate to have grown up here. Um, and I think that needs to be recognized. You know, we're all fortunate to be here, so we all uphold all the values and all the, you know, all the things that, that we together form here. So, um, yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, your contributions and Ahmed's contributions have been immense. And just, you know, hearing about your mom is so moving the way she's helped so many refugees come to this country. So I'm, I'm really glad we got to talk today. And um, your products are incredible. Tell us where we can find them. Sure. Uh, you can find them at natural food grocery stores across the country, Whole Foods, uh, Sprouts, um, any of the natural food stores. I'm not sure what's in your area. Um, and <laughs> uh, also a lot of the mainstream grocery stores like Safeway and Kroger's and um, yeah, all those types of stores too. Target as well. Um, there's some different SKUs at Walmart too. Uh, lots of coffee shops, lots of universities. Um, can Once be- you know about it, then you'll start seeing it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, where can we where can we follow you online? We're on Facebook and Instagram, and of course, newet.com. Great. Um, well, Reem and Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening and downloading. We'll be back next week, Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.